Welcome to Speaking of the Arts. My guest today is Mark Kaplan, and I could not be any more thrilled to have him on. Mark is a music entrepreneur, educator, conductor, and composer, a lifelong lover of the arts. He co-founded Subculture, a music and performing arts venue in downtown Manhattan with his brother, Stephen, in 2013. Since its opening, Subculture has received praise from the New York Times, the New Yorker, New York Magazine, and Time Out New York for its exquisite sound, comfortable aesthetic, and unparalleled hospitality. The venue's creative partnerships and programming have included such acclaimed organizations and artists as the New York Philharmonic, the 92nd Street Y, Quincy Jones Productions, and Carnegie Hall. Prior to founding Subculture, Mark was a music educator, garnering numerous awards and accolades for ensembles under his direction. Additionally, he has been an artistic director and guest conductor at music festivals and with such established organizations as the West Hartford Summer Arts Festival, the Hartford Symphony Orchestra, the American Choral Directors Association, and the National Association for Music Education. Mark has also served as a conducting associate for the Young People's Chorus of New York at Carnegie Hall. Mark, good to have you on the show, and thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Mike. It's great to be here. <laughs> um, and I should mention you're actually our first guest, and this is the inaugural episode. Oh, wow. What an honor. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I couldn't be more thrilled. Um, I think that you've got an incredibly unique perspective to offer um, anybody who's working in the arts because you, you're wearing a lot of different hats. Um, you're, you're, on the one hand, you're a promoter, a presenter. On the other hand, you're certainly an entrepreneur, and I think your background in music education um, just offers a completely unique perspective. So why don't we just kind of get started here? Why, let's let's wind the the clocks back a few years and sure. tell me how. So how does one go from being in music education to opening a major venue in New York City of all places? <laughs> um, it's a it's a pretty untraditional path, I think. In my particular situation, um, I had been teaching in the public schools since 2000, yeah, since 2000, and and the landscape of public education in the arts has started to change to the point where I I still loved working with uh, with my students and making music, but the bureaucracy of public education was getting to the point where I felt like the impact that I wanted to make in the arts I wasn't necessarily able to make in that particular um, structured environment as I, as I was in my earlier days of teaching. And so, um, and so my brother and I, we've always been close, and we have always wanted to find um, an ability to work together and use our skills uh, to bring something to fruition. And at that point um, in our lives, back in the beginning of 2011, Stephen was in between um, jobs and at a crossroads in his life, and I was definitely at a crossroads in mine, and together, um, you know, just through conversations and um, and through some events, we uh, and discussions, we we attracted this uh, amazing opportunity to um, you know put our skills together and 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 start a venue. And basically, the idea of starting the venue was that our skills, Stephen, is also a musician, but has a degree in finance and has also been a small business consultant for many. Um, businesses and with my artistic background, we really felt like this is a way that we could both make a contribution that um, that utilized both of our 
both of our skills and, and, and would make a good partnership. Um, little did we know <laughs> before going into it as not really being from the business, um, we knew it would be challenging. But, you know, um, we definitely have had uh, you know, some, some amazing learning experiences along the way of working together, trying to figure out um, our, our place in this business um, and our place with, with subculture and how it fits in, especially in New York. And we've learned a lot of lessons that have been incredibly positive, and we've made some great strides in the, you know, be two years in September um, since we've been open, and we're also learning every single day about how to do it better. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love that. Um, you know, I read in a, I think it was a Wall Street Journal interview, and you were quoted as saying, if you were to open up a, a crack in New York, this is what you would find. And I really, that's such a great sentence because to me it uh, it just creates a very dynamic image in my mind, right? This idea that subculture is a living, breathing space sort of on its own. So prior yes. to opening the venue, what, what was your vision for it? Or did you have one or how did you guys well, approach that? Yeah, I mean, that's a really, that's, that's, that's a great question because I think, you know, um, if Stephen were on the call too, he he would say um, that we didn't have much of a vision. Um, but Stephen Stephen comes from really focusing on long term a long term model and a long term plan. And and because the product of a venue is really its artists, and because we were starting with very little credibility in the industry, um, the vision from the very beginning was just try to create a room we wanted to be in. And wanted to go to, and from the very beginning, it, it, it was such a challenge and a process of not only a real estate search and finding space, but but finding a room with with an aesthetic and an acoustic, and then of course finding people and artists that are willing to be quote unquote the guinea pigs to first play it, and they may or may not be with exactly within our aesthetic. You know, we were not a nonprofit organization or an organization that planned um, this you know, seven, eight, nine years out with capital campaigns and things of that nature. We we really, we started, we attracted some capital, and we hit the ground running. And um, and in some ways, once again, it's the exactly right thing for us to do because we've definitely built this um, from a grassroots perspective. And I think the idea of the crack in the wall is that when you walk down the stairs, you see all this chronology of culture and technology in the area of Manhattan, the lower Manhattan that we're in, and the room itself is framed by these columns and these bricks and this wood and this this history of this building that we're in, which is 117 years old. And and the music that's taking place down there um, is running the gamut genre-wise. And, of course, the Bowery in this area, you know, is home to CBGBs, was home to some great, great and um, creative spaces. And so we're really running the gamut genre-wise across the board of, what is it that we want to present? What is it that that really speaks to us and our consumers? And then, of course, what is what is that new thing that might not necessarily be in the eyes of the press or in the eyes of of, um, of the New York community the most groundbreaking or different composition or piece or act, but just who is new on the scene that speaks to our value system as a space? And um, you know, and those people are are hard to find. And um but when you find them, um it's amazing. Just 
totally works. And we've been so fortunate to find, you know, artists such as the Aerial String Quartet and Jason Robert Brown, uh, who's become our artist in residence, and, and, uh, you know, and Greg Taylor, who's our composer in residence, as well as many others across all these genres who really speak to what the value system of subculture is. And I truthfully think that only by doing it, since this is our first go-ahead, have we really learned about what we love and what we don't love and how we want to present and how we want to run our operation. And um, so there's, there's definitely been a lot of growth since the beginning. But to just sum it up, I think our vision from the very beginning, like I said, was just to create a space that we wanted to be in. And, of course, there was a, there was a plan, a long-range plan, but it really has, has operated in the here and now, in the present. And as we hit the two-year mark, we're able to go back and look at here's what we've done great, here's what we need to do much better, and as we and as we head into the fall um, and the next you know the next season so to speak, um, we'll be making some of those changes. Yeah, well that's so exciting. I mean, congratulations on almost two years. That's that's just wonderful. Um, you you just mentioned a lot of really great things that I kind of want to pick apart for just a second. For example. Um, sure. You know, to, in in the context of the vision that you're describing, I think you know I read another interview where where your brother Stephen said something to the effect of subculture is a brand of sound, and that is a really interesting way to think about a music venue. And certainly, when I've been to subculture, it, it, just like you were describing, you walk down the stairs. There's this history. There's this sense of you know these different sort of layers, and then you get into the actual venue. And immediately, at least in my experience, um, you, I mean, that's just it. You, you immediately have this sense of, I'm going to have a great experience. And oh, you, know, you yeah. guys really found an awesome space. But in terms of uh, sort of this idea that it's a brand of sound, I mean, can you maybe describe your process a little bit for finding and presenting artists who match that sort of brand description? Sure. So, so when Stephen refers to this stuff as a brand of sound, or when I say that it, it's a it's an aesthetic, it means that not only does the room have a natural good acoustic, and not only has the gear in that room when we do amplify to amplify, um, you know, as my brother would say, to amplify that artistry, but it really is is there are artists who, when we listen to them, whether it's um, you know. Off, uh, off the computer or at live, we know or we have an intuitive sense immediately, um, or at least we think we do, what is speaking to us. And so, and so when we're curating, we, we're looking for that. So it's not necessarily, and here's where it gets confusing, it's like why the arts are completely subjective. It's like why one... Why one pianist and why not another? Why one string quartet and not another? Why one singer-songwriter and not another? Well, I think it comes down to a number of things. I think it comes down not only to the musicianship, but it but also comes down to the type of person the musician is and how their personality reflects not only in their lyric writing, in their in their songwriting or in their compositions, but also in their performance on stage. I think so many times across genres. We have artists who um, who are insular when they're on stage. And and I think sometimes the most successful people, whether you love their music or not, are the ones who have the ability to really 
reach beyond that, you know, in theater they call it that fourth wall, break that fourth wall, and really, really connect with an audience. And our space, subculture, is intimate, and the stage is only 18 inches off the ground. So it really gives the artist this ability to connect and appreciate and feel the audience with them, as well as the audience to get the best from that artist that is there. And so sometimes we'll be able to listen and we'll know. Sometimes we'll take a risk and it will be one of the best uh, decisions that we made. For example, um, there was an artist who had a visa issue um, and was going to be performing in another space in New York, and unfortunately she had to cancel that performance and move it two weeks later and we happened to have a date and um and it was just amazing she came and sat down at the piano and and this was something that that we did because i we heard the recording obviously and knew what what she was going to be performing but from the moment she sat down it was like oh my god like you know this is perfect in our space it was perfect and and hopefully she'll be coming back in the fall so it's things like that that once again, it's it. Sometimes you get this sense, and then other times it is this. Um, you have to iterate. You have to have people. You have to be open to listening to new things and inquiring about new people. And and that brings me, I think, to the next issue in the business, which is a huge issue, I think, in the business, which is trust. You have to you have to be willing to trust the agent and the manager with what they say, which is difficult. You have to be able the the artist has to be able to trust that the venue is on their side and is going to give them a great experience. And I think one of the things that we found also in these two years is is how little trust, unless you've been working with someone for years and years and years, how little trust there actually there actually is between all the different angles of the business. And I think one of the places where subculture is succeeding is even though it's taking longer for us to maybe you know, crack the surface with some larger agencies or some artists who have played in rooms in New York for the past 15, 16 years, I, I think one of the things that we're really trying to do is create trust and build trust with, with the artists, the agencies, and, of course, the audiences that come into our space. And, and, and I think we're doing a good job at that because the feedback has been, has been good. That is such a good point, this idea of, of trust. I mean, I... Wow, I mean, we could talk about that in an that's still an entire you know not just one podcast episode but a whole series <laughs> because no, I totally, totally. oh man, I mean yeah, that's you know i I'm approaching i I still feel like I'm a newcomer to the entire scene, I mean, in the fall, I'll have been I could honestly say I've been working uh in the music industry for about eight years, and you know early on, um that is something I discovered right away too, is that especially. You know, as an agent, uh, the, it, <laughs> trust is a huge thing, and it's it's all across the board. It's is this, if this is a new artist I'm thinking of working with, I mean, am I going to be able to trust them to be professional, right. to you know, not just do a great job on stage, but it's everything off stage. And you know, am I work if I'm working with a new presenter, am I can I trust the presenter to follow through on what they've promised? And wow, right. I mean, you know, I I think I to some degree. I think I'll always be a little naive and want to give people the benefit of the doubt, but the feedback that comes back to you and sort of the energy that you get, uh, you know, in certain situations is, I mean, you said it, it's, there's a huge degree of distrust. And, you know, I don't know what it was like 25 years ago or 30 years ago, certainly before 
the internet. I mean, I would think that people were really forced to spend a lot more time uh, focusing on their relationships. And and what yeah. I mean by that, I think, is yeah. simply conversations and picking up the phone and maybe even in person. And, you know, that's certainly my, you know, being a millennial here, the, <laughs> growing up on the internet, I don't know what it was like, but I do know that when I look at my best relationships, it's it's because I've put in the time to really understand what value can I offer this person or this organization and to cultivate that. And, you know, that's a reminder that I have to give myself. So I think that's such a good point because I think regardless of what side of the table you're on, whether you're a presenter, an artist, a manager, or, or an agent, um, it all kind of does start with that. So that's such a great point. And then, you know, the other thing you talked about uh, in terms of finding uh, artists that will sort of fit this brand is this idea of, you know, this intuitive sense of sort of uh, listening to their music and then deciding, I think this could work really well. I mean, that that's a great deal of trust on your, you know, on your end um, to be able to do that. And I don't think many people have that ability. <laughs> well, well, thank you. Um, but I think what it really is, is it's just about knowing, and this is also, that goes back to this issue of trust, is about knowing what is coming into the room. So, for example, um, you know, there's been many a time where we have submitted, you know, where we have submitted an offer or someone has said, I'd love for this artist to play here. And, and we say, great, here's what the room, I approach it from what, what the room wants the performance to be, and that's, you know, which is very different. So, for example, there's so many great spaces in New York, and there are many bands who have played other spaces which will say, I'd like to bring my concert to your space. And I'll say, well, this doesn't work in the same way here. And the reason why it might not work is our stage might be a little smaller. It might be a little bigger. Or the acoustic, we, you know, we set a dB level. We want, you know, we don't, we don't want the sound to ever, you know, be too big for the room or, or, or the ensemble to be too big for the room. And that doesn't mean we don't have a big band or an orchestra of 21 people on stage. It just means that those artists are willing to work within, you know, the parameter of the space. And us as a venue... You know, we many times um, don't micromanage the programming in a way where, you know, where another curator might micromanage the programming. We want the, it, the performances here to be what the artist wants to do. And, and when the artist is at their best creatively and the room has an ability to be an active partner in that creative process, that's the best type of performance. That's where that's the definition to me, I think, of a great live experience, and um, and that requires trust. It just does. It requires an intangible feeling of knowing what's going to happen, and and those people across the board. I think in any business, in any industry, you know, how many how many doctors do you go to until you find the one that you really love? How many? Uh, <laughs> Teachers have you gone through in school, but you have the one that really spoke to you. I think it's the same thing here. And while technical ability, and you know, obviously you have to be a professional in your instrument, um, but you need to be a professional as a person and a professional um, in your performance. And with those three things, um, that is at least what subculture looks for. When absolutely, yeah, yeah, um, you know. 
in, in terms of thinking about presenting, I wanted to just ask you a little bit more about how you guys approach that, even though we've covered that a little bit. Um, and sure, specifically, you know, I kind of think as, as relatively new as the venue is, you're approaching your two-year mark. I think it's. I think subculture has already distinguished itself um, because of the unique presenting formats that you guys offer. I mean, for example, there's a composer in residence, uh, you know, whole series. There's a unique collaboration between 92Y and the New York Philharmonic, and then there's several other in sort of, uh, I guess I could say, independent music series, all part of what you guys offer. Could you maybe yeah. describe your process for programming all of the series? Because I think anyone who's listening, who is on the presenter side of the table, would really benefit from your insight and how you've come up with this incredibly diverse sort of offering. Well, um, I appreciate that. Some of it we can't take any credit for. We're in, we're in New York. We have some of the best institutions at our disposal. And, every, and, and, and everybody wants to play in New York. And there's also a, there, there's a saturation of artists but not a saturation of space, and not necessarily a saturation of space that um, while there are so many options to choose from and great options to choose from, I think subcultures distinguish itself that they are for almost being almost like a special event type of room for either a launch or a performance where this project works for subculture. We are not, and I say this um you know, with with reverence, actually, we we will never be a single genre focused space because there are so many of them that are so great. When I want to go see Straight Edge Jazz, I want to go to the Vanguard. I want to go to the Jazz Standard. When there's a certain program, I want to go up to Dizzy's and see that. When there's uh, an indie rock band, I love going to Rockwood Music Hall. I love going to Barry Ballroom. Subculture, you know has become i think this place where 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 the artist and audience get to get to really experience each other's best and connect with each other. And so and so for us, you know, when we were first coming on the scene, the 92nd Street Y and New York Philharmonic were were looking for space for their for a downtown chamber series that was supposed to be at 92nd Street Y Tribeca. And 92nd Street Y Tribeca had closed about four four months before we were going to soft open. And they walked through the space and construction. And to their credit, you know, we took a we took a risk on each other and took a risk in trusting each other. And that's something that that really worked out. And over the past you know two seasons, there's been there's been 12 concerts in 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 coordination with the 92nd Street Y and six with the New York Philharmonic and. And those, you know, while we haven't necessarily looked at next season yet, in some capacity, those relationships um, have really helped define. They really helped define and anchor the room with some of the largest and most successful presenting organizations, you know, in the city. And from there, you know, because our in our room you can do so many different genres of music, and in the classical community you do not have to amplify. You can use the natural acoustic of the room. The classical community started to come on a little bit and say, okay, we can trust this a little earlier. And whereas other genres, um, you know, still held back a little bit. And so in order to do that, we we have an amazing piano in the space, with probably the best Steinway, uh, Steinway B in the city. Um, and, I, and I don't say that lightly. Um, and so we created a, we created a piano fest in our first year to just kind of iterate and see. 
and the piano fest, you know, in its first year, it, it was smaller, focused on a lot of solo piano. Last year it ran the gamut, and this coming October we'll be programming, you know, slightly differently. Um, so we want to do that. I created a series this year called The New Standard, um, which was a cross-genre platform of artists that just really were, I thought, doing something new. Um, and that doesn't mean, like, taking, you know, what people will call, quote-unquote, new music. It just, it felt new to me. It felt uh, different from from what other people are doing. Like, when Joe Laurie writes a song today, it, it feels, you know, I think it feels like a Joni Mitchell tune of days past. I don't know who our, who our modern-day Joni Mitchell is. I think it's Joe Laurie. When... Um, when Vertical Voices comes next week, I don't think there's another jazz, four-piece four jazz choir that's doing what they're doing. Um, and so I wanted to create a series essentially, um, you know, programming these people that I thought, you, you know, really spoke to me. And then we did, um, with the Aerial String Quartet, one of the features of the room is that we can do concerts in the round. And so the Aerial Quartet played... Um, one concert on our 90 Seconds to Y series. And after, in discussions afterwards, they said, you know, we just finished the Beethoven cycle of all the string quartets in Cincinnati, and we'd love to do it here in, at Subculture. And so so we signed on to that. So we've done one concert a month with them, all of the Beethoven string quartets. And we've presented it differently in shorter bursts, 60-minute concerts. We've done it in the round. It has felt like a living room. They have dressed down. And we've seen such a positive response from people just being able to come see the music, come in for an hour, get a drink, go home, and, and they're really having an artistic experience as opposed to, you know, needing to sit somewhere for two and a half hours or feeling like it needs to be a little stuffy or, you know, whatever it is. Um, it really, you know, these are the things that we've done that, haven't necessarily been super different. It's not like there's never been a piano festival before, but it's it's in our space, and and that I think makes it just slightly different enough for people to connect with it. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's great. I mean, to me, what I'm hearing is you guys have you know from day one decided we're not going to define ourselves by any single channel. We're not going to define ourselves by any single genre. We've got this amazingly unique space. We're going to take full Which advantage has- of it. Which yeah. Mike, which to just which has been difficult, which has been great from a programmatic perspective, but it's been difficult from a marketing and branding perspective because it's just it's taking us now. We're only finding now our core audience. Uh, we're only finding now those people who say, "Oh, this is why I would go to subculture," as opposed to let's say the vanguard who know they're going to go to get to hear a great jazz ensemble every single night, and that's what they're going to hear. With the diversity has come such a, a breadth of exposure and a breadth of of um, appreciation of all these different genres of music, but it's also been challenging to find that audience that that is willing to get bring it back to trust. Great, I'm going to come see a Beethoven court, you know quartet tonight, but am I going to go see that jazz trio? Sometimes it's crossed over, sometimes it is not. Yeah, that. Wow. Um... You know, I, I certainly wanted to ask you a little bit about how you guys market your shows, and you just led so well into that uh, that that topic. And I know that um, I don't want to take up too much more time here, although I feel like we could do an entire another podcast on uh, some things we haven't even talked about. But if you don't mind me asking, in terms of marketing, 
uh, the point yeah. that you just made, right, we, we're doing all these different genres. It's been hard to attract a core group of fans for a specific genre. Um, what comes to mind when I hear that is just sort of interesting, uh, I guess you could even call it a paradox in the way people listen to music right now, right? I mean, I've got access to every genre, every band out there online. Yeah. I can stream anything. And I tend to, throughout any single day, listen to every type of genre because I, I personally think there's two types of music. There's good music and bad music. <laughs> so from your side of the table as a presenter to say, you know, we are trying to present as many different types of music as possible. However, it's been a challenge because people are not necessarily identifying our venue with a specific type of music. That's really interesting, right? I mean, on the one hand, we can listen to as many different types of genres as possible, and I have a feeling that a lot of people do. But when it comes mm -hmm. to live music, I'm going to seek out what I know to be great for classical music, right? I'm going to seek out what I know to be great for indie rock. I mean, that's a really good point. So real quick, I mean, what are some strategies you guys have utilized to sort of meet that challenge of how do we let people know, well, really, we're just offering what we think is the best of everything? Sure. Well, I think, um, you know, we've taken different strategies in the last year than we did the first year. I think in the first year, we naively thought that if we, that, that I think we really naively thought, and, and I don't say this to in any other way than just to be um, completely straightforward, I, I think we thought that people would care that we were here and that we were working hard and offering a good product. And the truth is, is no one really, they knew about us, and but no one really cared. Uh, unless they knew who the artist was. Um, and I think we learned that, you know, and, and, and the New York community told us that through a variety of ways, whether it was the number of ticket sales or it was the artist we were programming or, uh, you know, what have you. And so what we did is we, we really just, with the agents and managers and also the artists, we really just said, look, the room is great. You're going to have a great time, and we need your help in marketing your your show. We need you to post on social media. We need your help um, on your you know on your mailing list. We need your help. Like we will do what, exactly what we say we will do, and we will submit it to all the listings. We will put it on social media. We will do some advertising. We will do what we can do. Um, but just being transparent and saying, look, we these are the number of tickets we'll probably sell, but we're going to need you. Not that we're guaranteed or saying, bring this in, um, but just saying, we need you to be vested in this performance. We need you to, to um, you know, to put as much effort as you can in, 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 in helping, you know, create a partnership with us in, in selling the show. Because the truth is, is the best performance for 20 people, those 20 people have a great time and, and subculture will still sound great and still give those 20 people and the artists a great experience. But it's always better when when there are more people there to appreciate all the hard work that's been put in. So so one of the things we did was literally just, just told the artist, look, you know, we know you're choosing between us, this other place, and this other place. Um, and if, you're, if, if, you know, we'd love to have you, and if you do choose here, this is kind of what you're in for, you know. And... We had many people say, great, and we had many people say, I've done 120 tickets consistently at this place. I've been there for six years, and I'm going to stay there. And I completely and totally respect that. So that's one of the things we did. The other things that we did is we just did a lot more grassroots and targeted um, targeted PR approaches. So, for example, if an artist was really into 
yoga or really into, um, you know, their hobbies. We reached out to some of those communities and said, you know, this particular artist loves this and you love this. Come with them to their performance. And that's, and that's definitely helped. The other thing that we did is we started more of a, even though it's it's been slower, we moved more to some of a residency type of format. Like with Jason Robert Brown, who's become our artist in residence, um, he's doing one performance a month. And those people will, if they really love what they see the first time, they'll buy the second time. They'll come the third time. We saw the same thing with the Beethoven string quartets. Um, and so it's just been an approach in, I think, finding what really works in the room and doing more with that. And and then being transparent about where we are as a space in a way that I think, you know, once again, this business is really tough. Um, it's the same thing if an artist comes in and says, yeah, I'm going to do an album release, and, and really I, I only have prepared 50 minutes. Well, if you prepared 50 minutes of, of a great concert, there's no reason to make it 80. Let's make it a great 50 minutes. Let's know exactly what it is. And that's the same thing with us. So for us, I think um, the key thing is just, been being transparent with the artist and, and saying, you know, this is what this is what we're going to need to get you to that capacity because we're still new and we're still finding we're still finding those people who need to learn about us. And there are still a lot of people in New York, regardless of the press, regardless of where we've been listed, regardless of you know the artists who are on the stage, who still don't know we exist. And um, and so we need to continue to do a better job at as finding those people and, yeah. and finding new outlets of, um, you know, new outlets of communication that might not be in the typical print magazines or the typical um, online blogs, but but new avenues um, where people are going to, um, you know, so they can discover us. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, yeah, again, you touched on so many great points there, and I think uh, in terms of marketing, I mean, what you're describing is that challenge of sort of educating uh, not just potential patrons, but also artists into what, you know, what, as you said, what they need to be prepared to do um, to kind of make it successful. And, you know, I mean, there's really no reason at this point where any artist who is, who is relatively new shouldn't be approaching their career like an entrepreneur. And there's right. so many tools and resources out there uh, that they can use. And, you know, I'm constantly amazed at how many don't. <laughs> I'm constantly amazed at how many don't don't approach things that way. Uh, maybe it's because they're entirely focused on the quote artistic aspect of their, you know, their product and not too aware of how it's coming across uh, to everybody else. And I mean, um, you know, but certainly. Did... Yeah, go ahead. No, and I was going to say the biggest thing that we've had to to educate people to is. Um, is that we have seats, meaning you walk in and we we are we're essentially, you know, um, we're a small, you know, theater um, that operates the music venue, and so we're not a cabaret style venue with tables and chairs and minimums and food and and all that like the typical downtown New York quote unquote club. We don't even use club in our marketing, and yet we're called a club all the time because we're 150 seats. But so the biggest thing that we've actually had to educate people are uh, to is that we have chairs, <laughs> not tables, <laughs> you know, not 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 tables, and um, and when people walk in for the first time and they say, 
oh, I didn't realize it was going to be like this. And we say, well, yeah, that's what we are. And Or a band that will, has performed so many times in New York in a standing venue, and we'll say, unless they can remove the chairs, and we'll say, well, we can, we're a flexible room, but we're becoming defined by these seats. And if you were at Madison Square Garden, people, if they wanted to dance, they'd stand in their seat. You know, they'd stand in the same thing. And so it's been, once again, building trust in that community and saying, you know, if you've performed in a standing club venue before, you know, will your concert transfer? And the truth is, is it almost always does. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, Mark, this has been a great conversation and, uh, more importantly, a great discussion. I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time. Um, and I think that you've touched on some incredibly important points that hopefully people listening are going to be able to take away with them. Um, so again, I just, I can't thank you enough and, uh, it was good to talk. It was great to talk to you and thanks for having me on the show and, uh, good luck as you, you know, continue to launch this show and, uh, I'm happy to be one of the, well, the first guests. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks again. All right. Be good, Mike.